Welcome to Rewind, the book club where we reread old YA books and tell you our unfiltered opinions with lots of wine involved. We're your hosts. I'm Sarah Jones Dittmeyer. And I'm Emily Cavender. This is episode 13, and we're talking about the Grim Grotto and the penultimate peril. We're almost done. We're so close. Also, remember when we started talking about Austere Academy, and then as soon as I said Austere, I was like, Austere? Austere? I was about to say Grim Grotto, and then I was like, Grotto? Grotto? I don't know that I've ever heard this <laughs> word out loud before. <laughs> Q-quig? Quee-quig? What is it? Oh my God. I was saying Quee-peg in my head <laughs> until like the last couple chapters. And then I was like, wait, it's Quee Quag? What the fuck? I always, as a child, I said Q Quag. And then Tim Curry says Quee Quag. And I was like, and when I looked at the text, I was like, yeah, it makes much more sense for it to be Quee Quag. So yes. I'm probably just gonna say the submarine. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, so oh. I am I am drinking. I I brought out the Oberon again, a new bottle, mm-hmm. which is a Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon. And you look like you're drinking like <laughs> something straight on the rocks. Is there any mixer in there? There is a mixer. I'm not that cool. Um, <laughs> it's been a rough day, so I told Sarah I'm drinking liquor today instead of wine. Also, I didn't go to the grocery store and I found a bottle of vodka in the freezer. So we're drinking a vodka lemonade. Nice quality. Classic. The Love only thing I had in my house. What brand of vodka? Um, it's called uh, Pickers, I think. It's a local Nashville oh, that's cool. brand. Um, I'm Googling just to make sure I got that right. Yeah. Pickers vodka um, made here in Nashville. And yeah, I'm not normally a vodka drinker. Like if I'm drinking liquor, I usually go for like a gin, you know, or if I'm feeling crazy tequila, like a margarita. Um, But this is the only thing I had in the house. And I will tell you, this is like 60% vodka, 40% lemonade. Delicious. This is a very good vodka. So I'll be drinking. Always a good thing. All right. So. It was your turn to come up with questions. It was. I was telling Sarah, I've never taken so many notes. I don't, I I think I took more notes on each of these books individually than I did on the Twilight books, honestly. Um, There's just so much to unpack in these books. Um, There's a lot going on in both of these books. Oh my God, there's so much going on. And I do want to start by saying I struggled to get through Grim Grotto. Like it was hard. I, you know, I like to read books in one sitting whenever possible. Yeah. I probably picked this book up 12 times and was just like, I couldn't make myself do it. And then I finally finished it. And then I needed to read Penultimate Peril, but it was Valentine's Day. And I wanted to read something cute and fluffy and gay. So I did actually read another book in the middle of reading a series, which is really hard for my mental illness, but I did. And it was really cute, which was a really nice breather because then I was able to get through penultimate peril a lot quicker. Um, So I think I learned a lesson that I need to like, I need to plug in some other books um, 
in between these. Also, it was just really nice to read something for adults <laughs> because yeah. after reading 11 children's books in a row, <laughs> Um, it was, uh, yeah, it was a nice, nice break. And then we got through penultimate peril, which I liked a lot more than Grim Grotto, but, um, yeah. So I, I didn't remember a lot about the Grim Grotto. Like I remembered the whole mushroom thing and I knew they were underwater. Um, and I don't, I didn't remember much about the penultimate peril. I remembered that they were at a hotel. I knew it was Hotel Denouement. And I think I said last time when we, um, well, not last episode, but when we went over Arisat's elevator, I said that that one was my favorite so far. I think Penultimate Peril is actually my favorite now. I don't know which one is my favorite. I just liked, I I, I liked the mystery of it. It was much more complicated to solve. We got a whole bunch of throwbacks. Um, which was always really interesting. Um, we deviated a little bit from his normal style. Um, so I think, yeah, it's much more complicated. Really? He did some really cool stuff with penultimate peril, just in terms of like the way the words were on the page and like the mirrors and stuff. Like there was some cool stuff in there. I think it was a little plot wise. It was a little too much for me to consider it to be my favorite. I think is Aristotle's elevator my favorite? Honestly, I don't know. I don't know what my favorite is. Maybe by the end of the <laughs> series, I'll decide. <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> scrolling through my notes, I ha- penultimate peril, I have twice as many notes for as Grim Grotto. <laughs> <laughs> and I have them in three sections. <laughs> this is wild. Okay, you know what? We should just jump in because I feel like this is going to be a long one. So. Grim Grotto begins. Our orphans are floating down a river <laughs> and are rescued by a submarine. Um, officially can confirm this is the last book that I read in the series. I only remembered the submarine plot wise. So there was a lot going on in here that was just not even remotely familiar to me. Um, so I know that this is the furthest I got. So they get into the submarine and we meet the captain, Captain Wittershins. And I want to slap this man in the face just because of his <laughs> annoying monologues. Like it was giving me anxiety just to read them where he was just like going on these spiraling tangents with saying I in between every sentence. And I was like, dude, do you need a Xanax? Like what's happening here? Oh my God. It stressed me out to read that. Yeah. Yeah. It, I li- I've been listening to the audiobooks, And so like they would just go on <laughs> forever and ever. I can't imagine listening to that on an audiobook. So we meet Captain Wittershins, this obnoxious little man. And then we meet the rest of the crew. They tell us originally his wife was a member of the crew, but she died they say it was an accident with a manatee, but by the end of the book, we know that that was not true. So she was definitely murdered. Um, we meet his stepdaughter, Fiona. And um, we learned that Jacques Snicket and Lemony Snicket both at one point in time worked on the submarine. Um, there was a reference to a dreadful woman that turned out to be a spy. So an Esme character maybe 
unknown. Um, but the current crew is Captain Wittershins, his stepdaughter Fiona, and Phil, a returning friend from Miserable Mill, <laughs> that sweet, sweet idiot who is always so optimistic, but he makes terrible casseroles. <laughs> and his leg is okay. And his leg is okay. <laughs> Phew, thank God. Um, <laughs> so it was it was really nice to see a friendly face again, which then we saw a million of them in the next book, but we'll, we'll get there. Um, so they get on the submarine. They learn that it, they are connected to VFD. And I thought it was interesting that they are talking to the captain and they said we think the vfd stands for volunteer fire department and he says that's how it started but then the volunteers became interested in so much more so at this point i've decided vfd doesn't mean anything at all <laughs> that's my current operating theory um so it maybe just stands for everything yeah they just use it as for as much as they can because mm-hmm. their organization evolved beyond being a volunteer fire department so. and they're just keeping in line with their branding exactly they have a very consistent branding strategy which i appreciate so they're in the submarine and they travel to a cave aka a grotto i in my head thought a grotto was like a swamp so again learning a new vocabulary word from the title of one of these books interesting interesting i can tell you weren't a little mermaid fan um i mean i was ish when you go to disney if you see ariel and ariel's grotto oh i mean i'm an air you can be a little mermaid fan and not be a disney adult so (laughs) yeah but like when you're a kid and you go it's it's ariel's grotto I've been to Disney twice and one of them, I was way too old to want to meet princesses. <laughs> and when I was a child, I was like, we're too four. old to meet princesses. I'm not a Disney adult. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So I learned grotto meant cave, underwater cave. So that was helpful. Um, and the reason why they go there is because Klaus has analyzed the tide charts um, and has determined that the sugar bowl must be in the grotto like the following the tide and science i don't know i'm bad at science words um so they take the submarine there and they learn that it is like a conical cave is that the word i want to use it's a Mm -hmm. conical cave um and the submarine can only go so far but uh they need to go all the way in in order to try to find the sugar bowl so they decide that the kids should just put on suits and go into pitch black water and float along and maybe they'll find it. Seems like a great plan. Um, (laughs) One of the cool things about this though, is as these children are just floating through pitch black water, which by the way, my literal nightmare, God, no. um, Lemony does give us like a narration of the things that are happening or like the what, what things look like around them, which I thought was really cool. So we learned that this whole thing was used by VFD and there's a mosaic of history and people um, all through this cave that they're floating through, um, which I'm like, dang, that could be really cool. I wish we could like see that with a detailed illustration. Um, 
there's also a pump in there so that all of the water can be removed from the cave so that they, it can be used by members of VFD. Um, most interestingly, though, there are several vertical flame diversions, which, as we learned, slippery slope. I believe, um, are tunnels, vertical tunnels that one can climb through that are originally used for smoke, but they also use them for secret tunnel travels. And there is a woman in one of the tunnels as they're floating by who is making her way towards the submarine. Who was said woman? If you know the answer because it's in the next book, don't tell me. I, I can't confirm whether my guess is accurate or not, okay. um, but my first guess is that it's probably Kit Snicket. Same. That was what I was thinking, but yeah. she's hella pregnant, so maybe not. I don't know. Yes. I don't think that would stop her. She went like jet skiing over to find Captain Wittershins at the end of Penelope. I mean, they Apparel. were, they said they were several miles underwater. That cannot be safe for a fetus. No, probably not. But should you be like water skiing? <laughs> that doesn't feel quite as dangerous to me. I don't know. I've never been I pregnant. I mean, so I don't you're know. not even supposed to like go on a plane at once you're like eight months pregnant. So it's like she probably shouldn't be doing any of the things that she is actively doing. So who knows? It's not that going on a plane is dangerous. It's just the risk of going into labor. That's why you're not right. supposed to get on a plane. So, so. But like, so should you be like jet skiing or water skiing like into the middle of the ocean to find captain wittershins like who knows probably not <laughs> um so an interesting thing though is that you know we'll get there in a minute but when they, the kids get back to the submarine wittershins is gone so <laughs> one can only assume that the woman that was in the vertical flame diversion got to the submarine and was the reason why wittershins and phil are no longer there so whether she's a friend or a foe she is the reason why they're gone is, is, is what we can assume here, I think. Um, so <laughs> here's, here's, a, here's a question. It's not really a question for you. It's a question for everyone involved in the scene here. Why didn't they tie themselves together when they were floating under the cave? It is pitch black. They can't see anything. For all they know, they could have been separated. There could have been a split in the tunnel that they didn't know about. Why didn't they tie themselves together while drifting through this cut? I'm going to say tunnel. While drifting through this tunnel. Uh, very good question. Um, don't know. <laughs> Blind faith, I guess. Maybe so tying themselves together would have been too much of a hesitation for Captain Wittershins. Um, God, that's the stupidest personal. Maybe there wasn't ever. any. Well, maybe there wasn't. Did they ever use rope on the submarine? There might not have been any. I mean, there had to have been something else they could have used, though, if not rope, mm -hmm. clothing. They could have yeah, held freaking I always, hands. Yeah, I always envisioned them holding on to each other, but I guess that's not the case. And that's just my logical mind being like, of course you wouldn't just like float without holding on to your siblings, especially since Sonny's like in a helmet. You can't swim. <laughs> She's just, her whole body is in a scuba helmet. <laughs> God, these books get harder and harder for me to like suspend my disbelief as we go. <laughs> <laughs> but 
they do hold hands on the way back at least. So, you know, at least we had that sense. So they get to the end and they get out of the water and there's this weird beach. And this is where we see the mushrooms for the first time. I'm not even going to try to say the scientific name. I didn't even write it down. Mycelium. Say that again. The medusoid mycelium. There you go. That's the only time we're going to say it. So (laughs) they find these extremely poisonous mushrooms on the beach. And Fiona tells them, because she is a mushroom scientist, mycologist. Is that right? Yes. She's a mycologist. mycologist. And she says, as long as they keep their distance, they'll be fine. But we learned before that even one spore could kill you. Spores don't care about distance. There's airflow. They, those could have flown across. I don't understand why they just were like, just stay this far away and you're totally fine. But you know, plot devices, am I right? So they're on the beach. Shocker. They don't find the sugar bowl, but they do find a bunch of um, extremely well-sealed food items and Sunny is able to prepare them a snack <laughs> and they bring some of them back with them because they say, we got to go back the mushrooms, they wax and they wane. And they, so when the mushrooms waned, they were able to get back to the water and swim against the tide, holding hands and Sunny back to the submarine. I feel like so far I'm just kind of narrating, but I feel like it's necessary because there's so much that's happening here. Um, so they get back to the submarine, Phil and Wittershins are both gone. Instead, there are three balloons tied to the table and the chairs that say VFD on them. When I'm reading this, I wrote down, is this a horror movie? Because to me, I read that as, oh, cool. Olaf kidnapped them and left that as like a creepy serial killer signature. (laughs) I think that's purposeful though. I think, I think we're supposed Mm -hmm. to like have that until they later then like later figure it out. That moment was just like, it's, I, I do love a good crime drama and the, the creepiest moments to me when I'm reading or watching crime drama things are right when you realize that you're not alone. Like there's something almost normal that's wrong and you know that there's a bad guy there. And this moment was giving me those vibes. And I was like, absolutely not. No, thank you. We do, we do learn later um, that it stands for Violet's 15th date because it is violence. Oh my God, Violet's 15th birthday. Um, in the moment though, before we got that revelation, I really thought it was either a serial killer signature or maybe that Phil and Wittershins had left that as a clue for them somehow before abandoning the submarine. Yeah. What did you think in, in the moment there? Yeah, I think, I think my first thought was definitely like, oh my God, like Olaf had to have come and like probably kidnapped them. Um, never in a million years would I would have guessed that it stood for Violet's 15th date. Um, but I think it's really cute that they had planned something for her and, Mm. you know, Klaus didn't get a birthday and the fact that like somebody remembered and, you know, they were going to like do a little, a little celebration at least, um, I thought was really nice. Yeah. It would have been cute, but instead it was horrifying. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, okay. Wow. Okay. I didn't take good notes over Grim Grotto apparently. Cause I just jumped ahead so far. <laughs> um, and I know that I wanted to bring this up, but I didn't write this down. Okay. So at this point, another submarine is approaching them and they see it on the monitor and it's an octopus shaped submarine. It reaches them and it swallows the Queequeg hole. Here's my problem with that. They are in a conical tunnel. It said in the book that the Queequeg, what's the word, sailed? (laughs) That submarine sailed as far as it could go. And the sides of the ship were scraping the sides of the grotto. And that's when they stopped because they physically couldn't go any further. If Olaf's octopus submarine is big enough to swallow the Queequeg hole. And I know you can't see me doing this, but I'm literally acting this out with my hands for Sarah. (laughs) The octopus swallows the Queequeg hole. It has to be at least twice as big in order for it to tumble through without scraping the sides inside, right? So how did said octopus submarine reach the Queequeg that is literally scraping the edges of the grotto without causing it to cave in? Could it be that it's like taller than it is wide? Like maybe there, maybe the I mean, we don't know exactly which end of the octopus comes in, right? Could it have been that like either its bottom part is like thinner, but it's long, so it could like take the quequeg in? Or or alternate theory, and I don't remember the exact description of this, so this could be completely off base. In the process of pulling the quequeg into itself, could the legs have been the ones to reach in and then brought it into the body of the ship in the part of the tunnel that is larger? I'll accept the second. The first one, no, because if it's the same exact width as the Queequeg, it wouldn't be able to swallow it. And if the sides are pressed up, the other one has to be bigger so it wouldn't fit. But maybe, yes, the arms reached out and pulled it into its depth, <laughs> into its gut, if you will. Yes. Also, of course, Olaf's submarine is shaped like a goddamn octopus. Just like yeah. he would. He would. Um, so after he swallows the Queequeg hole, he didn't even know the Baudelaire's were on it. And then he's like, oh my God, what a coincidence. <laughs> We actually learned that his plan here, so he knew, and we all knew at the end of Slippery Slope that they needed to be at the Hotel Denouement by Thursday. He got there early and he had a few days to kill. So he got this submarine. He used the snow scouts that he had kidnapped via giant net and eagles to power it manually. So they've been rowing somehow inside the submarine (laughs) to power it. And he was actually looking for Captain Wittershins specifically. He was like, I hate that guy. I'm going to go kill him because I got a few days to spare before I got to be back at the hotel on Thursday. What did Wittershins do to Olaf? 
could have been anything. I mean, because they're, well, I don't know. I mean, they're on opposite sides of the schism, technically. Um, But at the same time, we find out later that his son is in Olaf's crew. Mm -hmm. And so it could have been anything to do with Fernald or, you know, something that he did while he was as part of the schism. I don't know. It could have been anything. Yeah, I feel like for him to have hunted him down personally, there had to have been something that happened there. And I want to know what it was. Speaking of Fernald, also, I was saying Fernald in my head. But the <laughs> audiobook, I'm assuming, said Fernald. Yeah, he said Fernald. That's hilarious. Okay, mm. so <laughs> we don't usually learn the names of most of Olaf's henchmen, with the exception of Esme. But we learn the name of the man with hooks for hands. It's actually Fernald, who, lo and behold, is Fiona's brother, making him Wittershin's stepson. We'd gotten a few hints that Fiona's brother was on the wrong side of the schism. There was a newspaper article that um, Violet was very careful to keep hidden from Fiona. There were also some things in Fiona's behavior that made us wonder if she was really going to be trustworthy or if she was kind of going crazy after her stepfather disappeared. Um, And then we get the reveal that the hook-handed man is actually Fiona's older brother. And that shook me, honestly. Like, that was a good reveal that I wasn't anticipating because we don't get a lot of backstory on that troop. Quality reveal. Like, good Mm. twist where you're like, oh my God. (laughs) Okay, this is the one, this is the question that I texted you. And I said, because normally, normally Sarah's really good at coming up with these like, um, when I was a teacher, we called these hot questions, higher order thinking questions. Um, I usually just want to chat about how silly some of the stuff is, but I, when I wrote this down, I was like, Sarah's going to be so proud of me. Cause this is the kind of question she normally asks me. So, um, there is a fight, um, and I need to pull up the page. I wrote the page number down for context. Um, cause I want to make sure I ask this question, right? So Klaus and Violet and Fiona and Fernald, Fernald, I'm sorry, Fernald, get into an argument about good and evil, basically. They're talking about the schism in VFD and both sides think that they're the right side and both sides think that they're the wrong side. Fernald says, people aren't either wicked or noble. They're like chef salads with good things and bad things chopped and mixed together in a vinaigrette of confusion and conflict. He turned to the two elder Baudelaire's and pointed at them with his hooks. Look at yourselves, Baudelaire's. Do you really think we're so different? When those eagles carried me away from the mountains in that net, I saw the ruins of that fire in the hinterlands, a fire we started together. You've burned things down and so have I. You joined the crew of the Queequeg and I joined the crew of the Carmelita. Our captains are both volatile people and we're both trying to get to the Hotel de Numont before Thursday. The only difference between us is the portraits on our uniforms. So I thought we could take this moment to talk about whether or not you agree with what he says about it's not as simple as good versus evil, or I guess he said wicked versus noble. Um, 
So my part one of this question is, how do you feel about that part of the book? It reminded me of um, exactly what Sirius Black says to Harry in Order of the Phoenix. Um, Oh, Harry Potter reference. The world isn't split into, you know, good people and death eaters. We have both light and dark inside of us. Um, I think the sentiment in general is correct, but I think there's like a, there's a fine line to it, right? I think the act of setting a fire, for example, which the Baudelaire's think like they're wicked for, um, I can't, I don't think you can just judge the action as good or bad without analyzing the motivation behind it. Um, Olaf sets fires because he likes to watch death and destruction occur wherever he goes. Um, the Baudelaire's have set fires because it's been necessary in order to keep themselves alive and safe. So I think that, yes, it's true. We all do things that are like good and not so good. Um, but I think it's not as concrete as the line makes it out to be. I think motivation has a huge role in that. And I also think that like, if you're Count Olaf, your good parts don't really redeem you for all of the evil you've done. Okay. hundred percent agree. And I'm glad that's how you ended because part two of this question is I want to talk about Olaf. So I think in real life, what Fernald was saying about everything's a little bit more complicated here. Like you have, and like what you're saying about analyzing the motivations is key. Um, but up until this point of the book, everything has been black and white and not just this book, the whole series, it has been, there's been a very clear line in the sand of good people and bad people. And there's a lot of stupid people in the middle who just don't listen or pay attention. So do you think that Olaf has any good parts inside of him. Like Fernald says, everyone has good parts inside of them. Um, because up until what we've seen, he's been a very one-dimensional character so far. I think that he probably did at one point. I'm not sure that those parts are there now. Um, like we found out in, I forget if it's the Grim, no, we find out in um, Penultimate Peril that he is an orphan and he is an orphan due to poison. So somebody poisoned his parents. And so I'm sure there was a time where he wasn't so like on the dark side. Um, but do I think that there's like enough good in him now to redeem all of the evil things he's done since book one? No. Agreed. Yeah. I feel like, um, yeah, I wrote this question obviously before reading Penultimate Peril and we did get some more context into Olaf in that book. Um, however, it was like just enough context that you could maybe get like his origin story, but I still think he doesn't have any good parts in him, at least that we've seen so far. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think outside of this book series where cause this book series doesn't follow the normal rules of the universe and humanity. Right. Um, yeah, no, outside of this book series, I think a character like Olaf to truly be like unredeemable would have to be like a Charles Manson type person, right? Like, and I don't think that I would necessarily equate Olaf with that kind of villain in the real life, in real world, right? So I feel like in real, in the real world, Olaf probably would have some more to him than just 
greed and destruction, right? Um, so I just thought it was really interesting that Fernald brought that point up because in this series, like that was very much not the norm. But I wonder if it's because we're seeing everything through the lens of children, right? And this, th- these books in these last two books and then the next one in particular, we really see them maturing and growing. And maybe that's why they're finally ready to have this kind of conversation with someone. I don't know. I just thought it was really interesting. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think, um, yeah, like I think, you know, because this was written for an audience that is growing up as these books are being written, you can have more complex conversations um, about themes in these books that you couldn't have in books one, two, or three, you know? Um, And, you know, I think that's also like, you know, we see the books getting longer. We see the plots becoming a lot more complicated. Um, Penultimate Peril is a huge example of that. Um, so yeah, I think I think you're right that you know now the audience and you know Violet, Klaus, and Sunny are ready to have a more adult conversation about these things where there's a lot more nuance to it than we might have thought otherwise. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, you you brought up that example of Harry Potter and Sirius bringing that up in the fifth book you know, we were, we were close to the end of Harry Potter, just like we're close to the end here. These were written for kids, but the audience is growing and aging as the books are coming out. So, um, yeah, I think it was not only about the characters being more mature, but also the audience being more mature. So there's your one high level question that I'm going (laughs) to ask. So proud. Well done. Thank you so much. Okay. So now let's bring it back to my usual pointing out holes in the universe. (laughs) So they floated through the tunnel to the beach and they made it seem like that took hours. Like it took forever. Then they float back to the submarine, not float. They swim because they're going against the current. So one could assume that would take longer. Right. Yeah, absolutely. They They get back. Olaf kidnaps them. They're brought on board the Carmelita. They're taken into the room with Fernald, and then they discover that some of the mushrooms got into Sonny's helmet. This mushroom will kill you after one hour. This has definitely been longer than an hour. And they only just now notice it. And then they still have to sneak back onto the Queequeg, do the research, figure out what they can use, and give her the cure. Like, there is no way that all of these events from leaving the beach to getting the cure happened within an hour. Well, do you think that maybe their perception of time was a little off because they were in pitch blackness? Um, If you are scared and you are in water and you're trying to like, you know, you don't really know where you're going. I think that would probably feel a lot longer um, than it actually is. Um, yeah, that would Probably. be my only like defense of that. But even if you take out the swimming time, the time it took them from getting on the boat, Olaf gives a whole villain monologue, <laughs> getting in onto the other boat, meeting Fernald, having this whole discussion about right and wrong, slowly sneaking back onto the Queequeg, researching in the book. I All think they made it with like 10 seconds hour. to spare. Like, I really do. I think they got it very close. They did. I think it was like the clock was like 10, 9, 8. Okay, we're good. 
<laughs> I think it was that um, close. So they're researching a cure. They discover that the cure is horseradish, which mm-hmm. BFD was growing in factories on Lousy Lane, which is where Uncle Monty lived, which always smelled like horseradishes. I love tie-ins like this because I'm like, at the time, did Lemony Snicket know that he was going to use horseradishes on the 11th book? Maybe not, but did he purposely tie in book two in this moment? Absolutely. Um, I love those moments where everything, everything in these books, especially we'll learn in the next one, the silliest detail means something, which is super Mm -hmm. cool to me. Really love that. But of course they don't have any horseradish on the ship. They pull Sunny out of her helmet to ask her when you're cooking, what can you use instead of horseradish? I can't remember. Wasabi. Is that what it was? Wasabi Wasabi is what you can use instead, which is something they happen to bring back from the beach and they all take the cure and um, they're fine. It was a stressful moment. It was disgusting. I'm trying really hard not to die thinking about it again. So we're going to move on. Um, gross. Okay. So he's, when he was researching the cure though, he pulled out one of the books. He's reading through the chapter titles. Chapter 40 ultimately is the chapter he used to learn about the, my, my, (laughs) the medicine mycelium. Metasoid mycelium. There it is. Um, but the chapter right before it, chapter 39 was titled visitable fungal ditches. As soon as they got to that, I was like, BFD, this is important. Anytime you see that acronym, it means something important, something secret, something hidden. They skipped right over it, which feels stupid because they always are noticing the BFDs. And in the narration, Lemony tells us that there was something very important in that chapter that they should have read. What was in the chapter? I need to know. It's a really good question. I don't know. I don't think we'll ever know. And this is one of those things with the series is that I wish like Lemony Snicket would come out with like a whole extra book of just all of the details that like we didn't get to see. I just want a whole history of BFD. <laughs> yeah. What all of these little hidden references meant. Yes. That would be great. There have been several moments in the series so far that we've talked about betrayals that hit really hard. And Fiona's was one of those for me because we know in this series, we cannot trust adults. They have taught us time and time again, even when they have good intentions, they're going to let us down somehow. And no one is going to look out for them. The only people they've been able to trust so far are other kids, specifically the Quagmires. Then we meet Fiona and Klaus and Fiona are like a little flirty sometimes. And you're like, oh, Klaus, you're growing up, you're a growing boy, you're developing feelings. So the fact that it was another kid that betrayed them when they're supposed to be the safe ones, it was a different kind of betrayal to me in this moment. Um, and then it made it even worse because it's like, she decided to join her brother on the Carmelita and then she kissed him after betraying him, which is just fucking rude. Honestly, that she stole his first kiss in that moment. Um, I also had a good laugh over the fact that, um, 
Violet got privacy for her first kiss, but Klaus did not. Klaus didn't, yeah. Why do you think they did that? I think because it probably didn't mean anything. I think Quigley and Violet actually shared a moment, and I don't think Fiona's kiss meant as much, and so they don't get the same privacy. Yeah, Quigley's a good person, where Fiona's a bad person, so she doesn't deserve it. Yeah. Sorry, Klaus. <laughs> um, I'm sure there, there's speaking... some, there still is Adora, Klaus. <laughs> True. Uh, okay, so speaking of unsolved mysteries that we need answers, Lemony, this, there are two moments in the series where this happens, or in this book where this happens, and this is the second. We have the Queequeg. We have the octopus submarine. There is another one. Something else shows up on the radar that's like slithering through the water. It was giving me like Loch Ness monster meets an eel vibe that approached their submarine. And the first time they all turned off their motors and it left. This time their motor was still running when it approached. So it knew it, they, that, it knew that they were there. They, they were showing up on the radar, but it still chose to turn away. What was the Loch Ness Monster submarine? <laughs> Who was on it? And why did they leave them alone? I wonder if their job was just to sort of approach and observe whoever they are and not necessarily to engage. That would make sense. Um, who, whatever it was, did scare Olaf though. And there's yes. only been one other thing that has scared Olaf in these series. Yes. The man with a beard and no hair and the woman with hair and no beard. So I thought that was just like an interesting layer, but didn't it, it gave them the, a distraction in the moment. And that's how they were able yes. to escape. So even if we don't know who they were, it was a plot device <laughs> to let them escape. <laughs> I mean, so, I, I would totally believe that it would be people like on a mission to just like intimidate Olaf a little bit. <laughs> yeah, probably. So they take the submarine, they set sail. Can you say sail for a submarine? That just feels wrong. No, probably not. I don't know what the proper word would be. I don't either. Anyway, um, they set sail for the Hotel Denouement, so that they can arrive before Thursday. When they land, land, when they run ashore, that's probably better. When they run ashore <laughs> in their submarine. Google doesn't really have an answer for what a submarine does. Okay. <laughs> when they run ashore, lo and behold, Mr. Poe is on the beach waiting for them. And it's the same beach, Briny Beach, where they learn of their parents' death. They see Mr. Poe for the first time since the seventh book. And shocker, he wants to turn them over to the police. Fuck you, Mr. Poe. You've never done anything worthwhile in this entire series. What do they call them? Volunteer factual dispatches? Is that the right VFT? Believe so, acronym. So they had received one from Quigley with coded instructions that told them to go there and that when they got there, there would be a taxi and they should get in it. So Poe is standing there saying, come with me. We're going to go to the cops, but they see the taxi. So they run over to it. They get into it 
and they learn that it's Kit Snicket driving the taxi. Um, and the most important thing, I'm actually going to pull this up because I want to read the quote at the very end of this book, they're getting into the taxi with Kit. And it says the Baudelaire orphans climbed aboard, turning the tables of their lives and breaking their unfortunate cycle for the very first time. Talk about a cliffhanger. Like what a good ending to a meh book. Um, also, we have our letters to the editor. Multiple this time compared to the other books. Um that are our sneak peek into what the next book is going to be about. And there are several and they're ripped up. So we can only yes. see half the page, but they do come from stationary from the hotel Denouement, which is very interesting. Um, so yeah, I thought this one did a really good job of setting intrigue for the next one. Um, in some of the previous books, these like sneak peeks are really just more like, Oh, what crazy shenanigans are coming next. But now we know like, Shit's getting real. And then we move into the penultimate peril. Ultimate book in the series. So penultimate peril begins. We are in the taxi with Kit. She almost crashes the car because we (laughs) realize that there is someone in another car following them. She drives through like shrubbery, I think they said, and the car spins around and skids to a halt and then she reveals that she's very pregnant like visibly pregnant and i'm like ma'am although as we just talked about she maybe doesn't have the best judgment for what is and is not safe to do while pregnant like maybe just like be a little more careful yeah i mean she was trying to like lose people that were tailing them um but yeah maybe maybe don't like drive into bushes with children in the car not and mm. one of them is an infant that's not in a car seat. <laughs> yeah. So they're having brunch with Kit after getting out of the taxi. And we learn that Kit knew their mother. Um, they she specifically tells them a story about meeting up with their mother at the opera one night and secretly passing her some poison darts. And that their mother bought a poster of that opera because she said it was a night she would never forget. However, at the end of chapter one, we learn that Lemony was also there that night and he ran out of the opera house so that a certain woman wouldn't see him, which to me, that redoes Beatrice because he keeps saying about how he couldn't be near her fit like physically, like he couldn't go, he couldn't approach her. So to me, this is more evidence that Beatrice is their mother. Just yes. throwing it out Although in one of these books, and I should have flagged it, there was a line that made it seem like Beatrice was separate from their mother. It was the way he phrased something. He he had included like the Baudelaire parents and blah, 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 and Beatrice. And I was like, wait. And I, I got confused. That. Yeah. I forget what book it's in. I, oh, I should have wrote, wrote it down. Because um, I, I saw that line and I like, thought about it for a while because I was like, okay, does that mean they're two people or is he specifically saying this to throw us off track? Interesting. Knowing Lemony, it could be either way. Exactly. Um, so they finish brunch and then they like walk 
around a corner or over a hill or something. I don't know. And we get our first view of the Hotel Denouement. Have you ever been to Wonderworks in your life? No. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say Wonderworks? The name sounds familiar, but I don't think I could like tell you. So Wonderworks, I went as a child. Um, I'm pretty sure they're in like beachy towns, like in Florida. Um, And they're the houses that look like a house is upside down and everything inside is upside down. And it's like one of those like weird attractions you go to um, like with kids. And there's like, I think there was like some sciencey type things inside. It's like, it's this whole thing. That's like a cute thing for kids where it literally looks like a house has been ripped out of the ground, turned on its head. Right. Okay. So when we get the description of the Hotel de Numan, all I could think about was this is some wonder work shit. (laughs) (laughs) like it brought me back to my childhood going into one of these on a beach vacation sometime because the kids originally see it in the reflection of a pond but they don't realize it's a reflection because in the pond it looks normal in real life it was built on weird angles so that the reflection itself would look like the real version which is absurd, but it's like an architectural nightmare. Um, and it's not just that they took it even further. All of the words and all the signs are backwards. So in the reflection, they're normal. Um, the letters and numbers are backwards. Um, and they even had like moss and lily pads growing on the side of the hotel, because that's what you would see on the surface of the pond. This person, um, is either a genius or was on a lot of drugs when they decided (laughs) to design the blueprints of this building, um, giving us these backward letters, this leaning tower of Pisa effect with the hotel on an angle. Um, (laughs) yeah, I'm pretty sure somebody was on drugs, but it's fine. Um, so they see the hotel, they realize that it's not the hotel. They see the real hotel. Kit tells them that they're going to be posing as concierges in the hotel so that they can spy on all of the guests in the days leading up to Thursday when everyone will be gathering. However, it's not just the volunteers. All of the villains are also there, but the villains will be pretending to be volunteers. And she gives the example that there are twins that are managers of the hotel together, Frank and Ernest. Frank is a volunteer. Ernest is a villain and you will never know which one is which, but figure it out. And last but not least, there is someone who has checked into the hotel under the initials, initials, my tongue's not working, um, under the initials JS, and they need to figure out whether that's a volunteer or a villain. So they know if it's safe to give them the sugar bowl when it arrives. This felt like a very big ask of three children, (laughs) much less a literal toddler to be a concierge. I worked in a hotel for several years. That's hard shit. That's a really hard job. So um, I can't believe once again, they're just like, oh, an infant want to be a secretary? No. How about a concierge this time? (laughs) This is not Sunny's first job, which is, you know, insanity, but (laughs) Sunny will have a great resume by the time she like actually should be applying for jobs. By the time she turns three, she's going to have an excellent resume. (laughs) Um, But I thought it was interesting because they were like, why are we the ones doing it? And she tells them 
they're solving the situation on land. She is solving the situation at sea, which is meeting up with Captain Wittershins on a raft. So it sounds like he like took the emergency raft when he evacuated the Queequeg. And Quigley is solving the situation in the sky, a.k.a. the hot air balloon that Hector and his siblings are stuck on that is being attacked by all of these eagles from Slippery Slope that had been trained by the villains. So there's like three fronts here and different volunteers are assigned to handle all of them. Um, And their job is to handle the hotel. So they go in. They start their job and they learn that the hotel is organized based on the Dewey Decimal System. Again, as amazing. a person who just amazing. Work, <laughs> no, as a person who works in a hotel, that makes me want to die. That makes me want to actually just unalive myself. Like the thought of that is just so absurd. And not only that, but there is not a catalog to reference where everything is. Just like well, again, there, there is one. But it's not easily accessible. It's underwater. <laughs> but it's not really a catalog. It's it's like evidence that he's been gathering. Like I'm talking a simple catalog that's like, oh, this is in room this or number this on this part of the lobby. Like all of that stuff. Like they're like, oh yeah, we put artists on this floor. And I'm like, well, what if you had a million artists check in? They'd have to overflow to the other sections of the hotel. Like you can't use that same a system for categorizing the rooms that your guests are staying in. Like I, I can almost get it for everything else in the hotel, but not the guests. It just like makes me want to die. <sighs> Hotels. Oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> um, a question for you. Carmelita is at the hotel with Esme. She's been with Olaf and Esme um, since the end of Slippery Slope. So she spent the entire Grim Grotto with them and also now Penultimate Peril. Where are her parents? Really good question. Um, wasn't it implied that like Carmelita had a fortune too? So like maybe her parents are dead by now. Um, she had also, an uncle don't, in Slippery Slope. She did. But like what happened to him? <laughs> He was kidnapped with all the kids. Right. So like, he's not going to be a lot of help. And (laughs) I don't know, maybe I think either Carmelita's parents like don't care because they sent her to proof rock prep after all. Um, Or maybe they heard something about, you know, something happening in like on Mount Frat or something like that. And they're like, oh no. And they just think Carmelita is like involved. I don't know. Maybe she called her parents and they're like, oh, I just, I'm, I'm still on the mountain, blah, blah, blah. Who knows? I don't think Carmelita cares. Still on I don't the think mountain. Her parents care. <laughs> <Either way. laughs> That's so funny. On page 84, a quote from Esme Carmelita has been a tomboy lately, she said using an insulting term inflicted on girls whose behavior some people find unusual. Lemony is a feminist. Lemony is a feminist. Um, mm-hmm. And I loved hearing this yes. quote from him. I was like, hell yeah. Like, yes. 
Because I feel like that's not even, I feel like the term tomboy is something that like, even as feminists, we might not even think about the implications of it because it's just so normalized to like to call girls that are like acting in a more quote unquote manly way. Um, And I was like, hell yeah. Like that's definitely something that like a feminist would catch on to and write about in his book. So yep. Kudos. My note, my note literally said page 84 redefinition feminism (laughs) with a bunch of exclamation (laughs) points. Um, Okay. So this is my notes have a separate section here that I had to, for my own mental illness had to do. So at this point of the book, the three orphans have started their concierge jobs. They got three simultaneous calls and they had to split up. Lemony says these events are happening simultaneously. So you can read them out of order if you want. Did I? Of course not. I'm not a psychopath. So we get these three chapters one at a time where each of the orphans are at a different part of the hotel and all of them are running into people from past books. So like we said, um, Violet's on the roof and we see Esme Carmelita and Geraldine Julian, who we saw in person at the um, hostile hospital. Um, she's terrible. She's, she's so terrible. Um, they're doing some weird stuff naturally. Um, Esme has on what she calls sonoculars, which are sunglasses and binoculars combined so she can watch the skies. Carmelita asks for a harpoon, which really gave me some deja vu Not just a harpoon, like a harpoon gun with multiple harpoons in it. Yes, yes, a harpoon gun. Thank you. Which gave me deja vu to the vile village when Esme had one and used it to cut the rope ladder, which prevented the Baudelaire's from escaping with the quagmires. Um, we have Geraldine Julian, and of course, she's an Esme groupie. She's like hanging on her every word. She wants to be her best friend. She's a little sycophant. I ugh, hate her. Separately, we have um, Klaus. Yeah, so Klaus goes to a room, and we have Sir and Charles from the lumber mill. And I would like to take this moment to present three pieces of evidence that they are in fact a gay couple you don't even need to present the evidence because as soon as i heard them mentioned and like i thought back to what our episode where we covered this and i was like oh they're in like he's in a robe like around sir like 10 out of 10 they're a couple yeah i would like to say first when we read the miserable mill and i said that they are a couple i was some kind of joking you know like it can be inferred but I still thought it was like a funny thing to say in this book it is literally canon they are a gay couple and here are my pieces of evidence so when we first meet them Klaus is visiting their hotel room and Charles says and I quote I care about you it made my dead heart flutter later on um, we'll get there later, but when all of the hotel guests get out of bed in the middle of the night, they're wearing matching pajamas and my final and most damning piece of evidence when everyone is blindfolded, they were holding hands. I arrest my case. Gay. <laughs> <laughs> Although Charles deserves better and they're yeah. just as he, sir is treating him just as poorly as he was before. But you know what? I still need some couples therapy. They do. They do need some couples therapy. (laughs) 
while Klaus is in Sir and Charles's room, we learn that the mill is having some issues and we're bringing it back to my favorite thing about these series, these books is that the names always have a double meaning. They source their wood from the mill, from the finite forest, which is running low on trees, which is hilarious, (laughs) but also, you know, um, deforestation is a serious problem. Um, it is. But the fact that they named it the finite forest and then they say that it's running low on trees. Resources are finite, you know. Um, genius name. Also, an interesting thing. We learn that um, they got a letter from the mysterious JS inviting them to a party on Thursday and saying they should bring all their valuables. So, intriguing. Then we have... Um, Sunny, I forgot her name. Sunny in her chapter. (laughs) Listen, I've had a lot of vodka (laughs) and a terrible day. Um, so Sunny goes up to her job and she sees Vice Principal Nero, his violin, and their two former teachers in another room. Um, something hilarious. At the end of Austere Academy, or at some point in the book. There was a comment about Mrs. Bass being a bank robber. And now we see it happening. Yes. <laughs> in the room, she's in a disguise, has a mask and a wig on, and there are bags everywhere with the bank's name stamped on the side. And we learn the reason why she became a bank robber. She also got an invitation from JS to the party that said, bring your valuables, because he told her that it was a party celebrating the metric system and they wanted to measure all of her valuables. She said, I'm a teacher. I don't have any valuables, which is a hilarious commentary on the fact that teachers are underpaid in the United States. Um, so she decided to rob some banks. Um, she, she said, quote, she had to resort to a life of crime so that she could have <laughs> valuables to be measured at this party. Um, the other teacher, his invitation said that there would be an all-you-can-eat banana buffet. So we're seeing that everyone is getting an invitation that is specific to their interests in order to get them all in the same place at the same time, which I thought was very interesting. Then they um, ask Sunny to take them to the restaurant, I believe. And when they get there, it's Hal from the hostile hospital, that sweet, sweet librarian um, is now working inside the hotel in an Indian restaurant. Um, when Sunny is there, she goes into the kitchen and he's having a conversation with Frank or Ernest. We don't know which one. And he implies that JS is a woman. So at this point in the story, I thought that maybe it was Esme trying to trick everybody because she mentioned that she was throwing a party on Thursday. So um, I thought that was very intriguing. They also were speaking in code, talking about mushrooms and sugar. So the say the mushroom name again. Medusoid mycelium. Yep. That and the sugar bowl. Um, so they're in all three of these chapters, the orphans are seeing kids from their past. Everyone is speaking in code. Everyone's trying to make sure they're not being overheard when they're talking. And this is really the beginning of when I just got so confused when I was reading this book, <laughs> there was, everything had a hidden meaning and I know I wasn't picking up on all of it. Um, so it was a little overwhelming. Bring it back to the beginning of the book. 
in the beginning of chapter two, Lemony is talking about how the world looks confusing in a mirror. Um, half of the opening paragraph ends up being written backwards, even like lines in the middle flip to being backwards, which I thought was a really cool thing that he did visually in this book. Um, but reading it, I want to read a quote. Life is perplexing enough without thinking about other worlds staring back at you from the mirror, which is why people who spend a great deal of time looking in the mirror tend to have trouble thinking about anything except whatever secrets they discover after so much reflection, such as a previously unknown sibling who was already watching them at that very moment. When I read that, I was like, is this the Snickets? Is there a fourth Snicket? Is there a fourth Quagmire? Is there a fourth Baudelaire we don't know about? But then it ends up being about Frank and Ernest, our mysterious hotel managers, one of whom is a villain, one of whom is a volunteer. They're actually triplets. And we meet Dewey. And their last name is Denouement, which is the name of the hotel. And we can only assume that Dewey chose the Dewey Decimal System because of his own first name, <laughs> which is frankly silly. Um, it's it's frankly silly. Then <laughs> it in there. Um, anyway, so we meet Dewey, and he is very mysterious. He takes him outside. We learn his true identity and we learn that he is a sub sub librarian and he has been tracking everything that has been happening, all of the good people, all of the bad people. And he has a hidden library with all of this evidence, which is in the pond. And he uses the Dewey decimal system to organize it in the mirror image of the hotel in the pond. I did like that. I did like that very much. I thought that was a really cool detail and explains why this hotel is built so silly. And then like, as we finally found someone we think we can trust, there are two more people from our past that arrive, Justice Strauss and Jerome Squalor. Number one, I'm really disappointed that I didn't place the JS acronym before this reveal. (laughs) Uh, like I'm disappointed at myself for not catching that. But number two, they get out of a taxi and they say they've been looking for them this whole time. And I cried. That was like the first time an adult has truly been trying to take care of them. They both said that they immediately regretted not fighting for the kids after they were no longer in their care. And they've been looking for them ever since. The fact that these adults have been trying, and Charles too from the lumber mill, they've all been trying to find them and keep up with them because they care about them and they want to help. And I was like, oh my God, they're not alone. This is so great. Because I love Justice Strauss. Like, I feel like she didn't really, she didn't betray them. She also just like, she didn't fight, but she didn't betray them. Jerome was a full-on betrayal, but he- realized that what he did was wrong. And he was like, I'm going to make up for this. And I'm going to do everything I can to take care of these kids. And I was like, did your finally opinion have an adult of Justice Strauss change though at the end of this book? I don't think so. Really? I think without getting like too tangential here, people who make a career out of law, like that's their whole life. Right. And so she wanted to keep taking care of them, but in her brain, And in her reality, the only way to do that would be to prove their innocence using the justice system. 
the kids said that they couldn't trust that. So they had to keep going, but she said, no, you have to stay. We have to do this together. Like, I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to help you. And she didn't want them to leave. And I think she, you know, in a normal universe, yeah, she's probably right. But we know in this universe that that there's no way that that's going to happen until they can, you know, get the sugar bowl and get all this evidence together. But she also like jumps to the conclusion that like all of a sudden they're like on Count Olaf's side, which I didn't appreciate. Yes and no. I feel like she, if like they didn't have time to explain what they were doing to her because they were doing it like in secret, you know, they were trying to send a signal to get, if she knew that they would have, she would have understood, but they didn't take the time to explain that to her. So she, she wasn't giving up on them. Like she gave them a final warning as they left. Like, don't, don't like let this happen to you. You know, like remember who you are very much was how it felt like they left things with her. And like, she was still going to be fighting for them. So, um, I don't fully agree with what she did, but I understand it. So yeah. Okay. So backing it up a little bit, they say, so they're the two JSs that have been sending all these messages to people gathering everyone on Thursday. And we find out that it's not a party, but a trial that they've been planning. They want to gather all of the volunteers, all of the villains, go over all of the evidence and put this all to bed. I should have known better, but I got a little hopeful. I did. It didn't last very long, but I was like, is this the denouement? Is this us finally getting all of the answers we've been waiting for? Of course it wasn't. Because instead, the kids accidentally killed Dewey. Olaf shoves the harpoon gun into their hands. They drop it. A harpoon is shot and kills him, which honestly might be the most heartbreaking thing that's happened to them since their parents died. Like the last couple of books, they've been struggling with like, are they good people? They've had to do bad things to, you know, keep their identity secret or to escape whatever the reasons may be. They've been doubting themselves. And this is just going to make that so much worse. Also the trauma. Like, yeah, I know. Not that these kids needed another traumatic event <laughs> in their lives. Never enough trauma. Never, literally never enough trauma for them, apparently. <laughs> um, I know, I felt really bad. And we're going to talk about what Dewey says before he dies, right? Oh, yeah, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. Um, but I would just like to say that it's Poe's fault that Dewey's dead. <laughs> because Poe walked into the room, distracted everyone. He's the reason why Olaf shoved it into their hands. And the reason why they dropped it, they were all trying to figure out who it was. I hate you, Mr. Poe. And I'm blaming you. All for of this has, everything that has happened in this book has been Poe's fault. You're right. Fuck you, man. <laughs> <laughs> you suck at your job. You never should have been promoted to the head of orphan affairs. No, never. Literally never. Um, We can talk about it. We'll talk about it now. So as Dewey was dying, the last word he said was Kit. As in Kit Snicket. In the moment, I thought it was more of a like, go to Kit, she'll help you kind of thing. But we actually learn in the last like two pages that he and Kit are in love and he's the father of her baby which is just so awful that that baby's going to grow up not knowing who her dad was. And he is like one of the true heroes of this story. Like, I know, I know. And it's even sadder, like 
if we think back to the beginning of like Kit already not having hope of everything working out anyway, mm-hmm. and she was right. She was right. Like she has to raise that baby by herself now because Dewey is dead. Everyone wakes up because it made a loud noise. There's some more mob mentality going on and they think that the Baudelaire's murdered him. So they decide to bring up the trial to Wednesday and they will be not only covering all of the Olaf stuff, but also the Baudelaire's and the crimes they've been accused of. And now also Dewey's death. So they're locked in a closet overnight because <laughs> there's not like a jail cell. <laughs> Olaf is also locked up. The next morning is their trial. When the manager comes to let them out of the closet, he gives them blindfolds because justice is blind. And they mean that literally. Of course they do. Everyone has to wear a blindfold except for the judges, which is, I know I've said this before, the most ridiculous thing that has happened in the, <laughs> in the rules of this universe to date. Also, Strauss says that there are two other justices with her. And as soon as she said that, I knew that it was going to be the man with a beard, but no hair and the woman with hair, but no beard. I knew it. I fucking called it. I almost texted you in the moment to be like, it's going to be those bad guys, isn't it? And she mentions that the other judges are coming and Olaf laughed. And that was just like all the proof that I, that my hunch was correct. Um, and lo and behold, you know, they go to their trial, everyone in the audience is blindfolded and they're asked to tell their story. And they realize that Strauss is making some weird noises. So they take off their blindfolds. They're in contempt of court and they see that Olaf is kidnapping her. And the other two judges, the evil ones are trying to cover and they're begging people to take their blindfolds off to see what's happening, but nobody wants to be held in contempt of court. So no one takes off their blindfolds, not even Jerome who said, I believe them would take off his blindfold. And I'm like, you guys are all fucking stupid. You're just dumb. And I'm drunk enough in this moment that I'm just done with all of them. I hope they all died in the fire. Honestly, like I'm so (laughs) done. (laughs) So we're at the end of the story. They need to open Oh God, I don't remember what the VFT acronym is. Let me look it up. Um, Vernacularly fastened door. Yes, the vernacularly fastened door. And one of the things they need to open is the weapon with which Olaf's father was murdered. And surprise, it was poison darts, which we know that their parents had in their possession. Do we think that Mr. and Mrs. Baudelaire murdered Olaf's father? And that's the reason why all of this is happening. Like, is he trying to steal their fortune? It's totally possible, but it makes me question now what the ages are of their parents. Because I, I think I always assumed that Olaf and their parents were of a similar generation. But maybe that's not true. Maybe Olaf is older than we thought he was. Or or her or the Baudelaire parents are yeah yeah I'm sorry the Baudelaire parents are older yeah and Olaf maybe is like in the young twenties right I don't know I just felt like and I feel like this 
again, we're going to bring it back to Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. That's the same book where Harry learns that his father was a bully. And that was like a really hard thing for him to learn. Um, I think it was even harder because he didn't know his father at all. But, um, you know, after a loved one dies, it's very normal to like put them on a pedestal and idolize them. So for someone to tell them something potentially damning about their parents when their parents aren't there to defend themselves is really hard for them to hear. And like Sunny brought it up at one point and they were all like really worried about this. And I would be devastated to learn if this was true. I hope it was an accident. I don't, we don't know what happened yet, but it was very sad. Um, and once again, we have a book ending with the kids escaping with Olaf. They use bed sheets to make some kind of parachute to jump off the roof in a boat and it catches the air and carries them to the sea, which defies all laws of physics. Um, And they burn down the hotel in the process because they needed to send a signal to Kit to not come on Thursday and that everything was canceled. And that was Sonny's idea. Um, And it ends with them sailing off with Olaf. With Olaf. Once again in his clutches, he said. Um, Yeah. So with that, I think it's time to check in on our trackers. In book 11, The Grim Grotto, we got some new VFD definitions. Volunteer factual dispatch which is the telegrams volunteer fish domestication. They were training fish or something. Um, Versed furtive disclosure, which is how they use poems to code things. Mm -hmm. Verse fluctuation declaration is also poems. How they change the words of poems. Yeah. I don't remember. Um, Verifying Fernald's defection was the article <laughs> about Fernald actually being on the wrong side of the schism. Visitable fungal ditches, the name of that chapter title, Violet's 15th date, and volatile fungus deportation, which we will talk about now. So, visiting my VFD tracker, things that we're learning about VFD. This Uh, In the Grim Grotto, they were going under the tunnel. It was underneath what used to be Ann Whistle Aquatics. Gregor Ann Whistle, who is Aunt Josephine's brother-in-law, was the founder of Ann Whistle Aquatics. He was involved in the schism. We don't really know what side he was on. He was farming the poisonous mushrooms. I still can't remember what it's called. Medicide mycelium. Thank you. Um, He was farming them down here in the grotto, um, which is what they called the volatile fungus deportation. Um, They would then take the fungus, the fungi, to those factories on Lousy Lane so that they could make the cure, aka the horseradish, which is why it smelled like that. Uh, He was warned how dangerous that would be if it ever fell into the wrong hands, which it did. Olaf got it, his clutches on some, but he wasn't able to use it. So they were safe. Um, we also learned VFD has both submarines and planes. So not only was he tracking down the Queequeg, 
um, submarine, but there were other VFD submarines and other VFD planes that Olaf wants to track down so he can destroy all of them. Um, here's the note that I struggled so much over earlier. VFD has an official policy that volunteers must travel separately from their picnics. That way, if the enemies capture the volunteer, they won't get the picnic. And if they capture the picnic, they won't get the volunteer, which I found hysterical. Um, and lastly, both Kit and Dewey were four years old when the VFD schism happened. So it's something that they've been dealing with for them almost their entire lives. Right. They like, didn't really know a VFD before the The schism. schism. Exactly. We also have the Beatrice Lemony tracker. Only a few updates here. Um, we learned about Kit, that Lemony's sister's name is Kit, that she's pregnant, and that Dewey, Dana Ma, was a baby's father. We learned that Beatrice died because her house burned down, which is more evidence that maybe she's the Baudelaire's mother, um, but maybe not because they burn everyone's homes down when they want to kill someone. So who knows? <laughs> um, and also that weird and- sentence. <laughs> what weird sentence? The weird sentence where it sounded like Beatrice was oh. separate from the Baudelaire piece. Yeah. And the last note, we theorized last time, you know, that, you know, Beatrice had stolen something from Esme. She confirmed that the sugar bowl that has the evidence is the same sugar bowl that Beatrice stole from Esme. And that concludes all of my notes on these two books that are very confusing and have a lot of details. so out of the two which place would you rather live this is a really hard question for me um i have extreme claustrophobia so the thought of being in a submarine makes me want to die however i also used to work at a hotel and it was the worst job i've ever had (laughs) actually the second worst job i've ever had not as bad as working a cracker barrel (laughs) um if I could go to the Hotel Denouement as a guest, I'd pick that one. If I had to be an employee, I'd probably still pick the hotel. I just can't, I cannot imagine myself stepping onto a submarine and being underwater. That makes me, that's very triggering to my anxiety. So I'd, I think I'd still pick the hotel. Yeah, I what think I would, pick the, I would pick the hotel too. Um, mm-hmm. You know, service jobs suck, but- you know, I feel like you would get a lot of interesting information by listening to guests. And over time, I think, you know, you would figure out the system and it wouldn't be so confusing. True. I feel like once you, once you've worked there for a couple of days, take some notes, (laughs) we could develop a catalog. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We can make it ourselves. Uh, We can, we can make it work probably. Um, Oh my God. There's only one book left. That's crazy. Is and then you get to watch the Netflix series, and I'm so excited. I'm so excited. This whole time I've been reading, I've been trying to imagine how they depict some of the things in this book on screen, like especially the things that defy the laws of physics. Like obviously, there's movie magic, but like I want to know how they explain it. I want to. I want to see it. I've been. I've been sort of like watching a couple episodes here and there. Um, and there is one change in one episode that I think you will really enjoy. 
because you mentioned it on the podcast and they did it in the show. (laughs) Can you tell me which book it happens in? The Airsats Elevator. Is it about Sunny climbing up the elevator shaft with her teeth? Um, not exactly, but related. Is it about the hot fire pokers? No, but related. Same setting. Is it about the number of times they climbed up and down the elevator shaft? <laughs> kind of. Okay. I'm really excited. I have no <laughs> idea what this could be. Um, I can't wait to watch it. It's going to be so fun. Um, well, we have one thing left to do last call. call. <laughs> and as a reminder, we decided we're doing one last call that covers both books. Okay. I'm going to say my combined summary, Grim Grotto and Slip and Penultimate Apparel. I'm going to say claustrophobia, poison, and a lot of annoying hotel guests. It's a good one. The end. Mine is libraries. Very helpful for mushroom remedies, but not so helpful to design your hotel after. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) I love that so much. But I have Um, to, I have to share, I have to share the one I came up with just for the penultimate peril because I think it's good. Um, even the Dewey Decimal System can't prepare you to sort through all these hashtag throwback Thursdays. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Fantastic. We will see you again in two weeks where we will be covering only one book. The last book in the series, which is yes. just called The End, which I love. Um, and then the episode two weeks after that is will be over the TV show and the movie which I'm so excited about. See you guys next time. First round's on us. Rewind is written and produced by Sarah Jones Dittmeyer and Emily Cavender. It's edited by Sarah Jones Dittmeyer. Music is by Mark Schwedo. Find us on TikTok at Rewind Podcast or on Instagram at Rewind underscore podcast.